We'll be continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 28. It's the whole of Hebrews chapter 7. If you've been to any of my Bible studies on Thursday nights, you know that sometimes I can spend like six months on like one chapter. Uh, So, and this is a big chapter. There's a lot to say here. I won't keep you six months though. As we prepare to study God's word together and hear from God's word, I'm just going to read the last three verses, Hebrews chapter 7, 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I don't know who designed the calendar for the month of June, but they must really like me. Because every year, in like a one-week period, I get my birthday and Father's Day. Which means that like I get to plan the menu for two days, it means I, you know, get to put my feet up. Well, theoretically, I get to put my feet up. It's like two days that are all about Clayton. And so that's really great. And every year as I get older and every year as I'm further into this journey of fatherhood, I, 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 it causes me to stop and reflect. And every year as I get older and every year as I get further into this journey of fatherhood, you know what I realize? I am more and more like my dad, kind of a chip off the old block. This apple didn't fall far from the tree, except I still have hair, and he doesn't. Now, there are differences between me and my dad. Don't get me wrong. But the amount of times when I'm like, even the way I just said the word taco sounds like my dad. Like, isn't it interesting how we begin to notice that we're more and more like our parents, that we're a chip off the old block? Now, You guys have known me for almost eight years, and as your elder and as a member of this church for that long, we're beginning and continue to get to know each other better. And if you saw me and my dad, if you were to spend time with me and my dad, and you were to see some of the mannerisms that my dad has, would you say, boy, Clayton is like his dad? Or, since you know me better, would you say, wow, what he just did reminds me of Clayton? You would probably say, right, that What he does reminds you of me. Amy, who lives with me every day, who, and you should pray for her, um, if she sees something that my dad does, she's not going to think, boy, Clayton sure is like his dad. She's going to say, oh my goodness, that's the same thing Clayton does. Now, my dad came first, obviously, he's older than me, but I resemble him in many, many ways. In the book of Hebrews, I I believe that Hebrews was written by Paul. I believe it was a sermon that he preached and that someone, uh, he didn't have a microphone recording it, but someone took down notes and they wrote down what he preached. That's what I think the book of Hebrews is. And in this sermon, in, in this book in our Bible, there's one concern 
There's one point. Everything is driving to this one thing, and it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than all the angels. Jesus is better than every prophet. And then he tells us why Jesus is better. Today, it's, it's really beginning a new portion of the book. Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9 are, are, are sort of like the third section in the book of Hebrews. And in this section, Paul is going to tell us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything you can put your hope and your trust in. And why is that? Well, it's as he says at the end of chapter 6, that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus resembles Melchizedek. In a lot of ways, Jesus is a chip off the old block of Melchizedek. The Jesus apple didn't fall far from the Melchizedek tree, if you will. But then that is, forces us to ask the question, who is Melchizedek? John read for us uh, Genesis chapter 14 earlier where we see Melchizedek. And that is the only time that we see Melchizedek in the Old Testament except for in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Right, whenever we read the New Testament, the authors are constantly quoting the Old Testament. That should tell us something about our Old Testaments. One, that the New Testament writers cherished their Old Testament, that they knew their Old Testament, and that they believed it to be God's word, and so should we. And because this passage, Psalm 110, is the most quoted verse, the most quoted passage in the Bible, it ought to tell us that it's pretty important. Perhaps you have heard it. Uh, We read from Psalm 111 earlier in our call to worship, and that's directly after. But in Psalm 110, it's a psalm of David, and it says this, The Lord, all capitals, meaning Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's the part of this text, that's the part of Psalm 110 that Peter quotes in his sermon at Pentecost. It's been quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrews. It's quoted in Corinthians. It's quoted in Romans. It's quoted over and over and over. But now Paul is going to give us some more context to that passage because it doesn't end there. Later in Psalm 110, near the end of that chapter, it says this. After telling us that the Lord is going to set the right hand, all the enemies will be defeated. In verse 4, it says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is mentioned two places in the Old Testament. It's quoted in, or it's the initial story that John read for us in Genesis And then in Psalm 110, in telling us about the Messiah who is going to come, the one who is going to be victorious over all of God's enemies, the one who is going to sit on God's throne, he's not just going to be a king, he is also going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is a priest? 
I, I, oftentimes, you know, whenever people at work, they hear that I'm a pastor or an elder, they say, oh, you're a priest? <laughs> no, not quite. We have, I, I think we have some cultural misunderstandings in, in regards to priests, but the priest was the one who would literally go before God on behalf of the people. The Old Testament makes it very clear to us that weak and ruined and needy sinners, that is everyone, that is all humanity, they cannot go before God. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. Therefore, if we are going to be in the presence of God, we need someone to go on our behalf. We need a priest. We need one who is going to go before us. Yes, God came down to the people in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire, but it was also necessary for someone to go between the people and to God. That is what a priest does. We're going to see more about that, but Genesis, and in fact Hebrews 7, tell us that Melchizedek is a priest. Psalm 110 tells us that Melchizedek is a priest, and it tells us that the Messiah who's going to come is a priest. Now, like I said, we could talk about Hebrews chapter 7 for ages and not exhaust the theological truth there. But I want us today to see three things about Melchizedek. I want us to notice three things about who he is and his priesthood. And then we're going to see how Jesus is himself a priest like Melchizedek. First is Melchizedek himself. Beginning in verse 1, for this Melchizedek that Jesus is going to be after his order. Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And Abraham apportioned to him a tenth part of everything. And he says this, He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now in the Old Testament in particular, your name was definitive of your character. Even whenever Peter has his name changed from Simon to Peter, it's changed from Simon to Petrus, rock, Cephas, rock. He was going to be the foundation of the church, a strong and, 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 and stalwart foundation of the church. We don't really name people based on their characteristics anymore, but if the elders at this church, you know, if we were to put in the bulletin, you know, the names of the elders in the Old Testament way, it would be like short and skinny and tall and skinny. And people would say, oh, I know who the elders are. It's those two, right? Like you could look and see. They might get Caleb confused for, well, and Nathan too. I guess it's just something about the pastors and interns here. Your name is definitive of who you are. The name Melchizedek literally translated from the Hebrew is king of righteousness. King of righteousness. Now, to be the king of righteousness means that he is, in fact, righteous. Now, contrast that with Abram and Abraham. What does the scriptures tell us over and over about Abraham? It tells us that he believed and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abram, Abraham, was righteous. We're told that he's given a righteousness that isn't his own. But not Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness. He is in himself righteous. He is in himself blameless and unstained from sin. 
It also tells us that he is the king of Salem. That's probably Jerusalem, uh, the city that was built upon that hill. And that he is the king of peace. Melchizedek, then, is one who is unstained with sin. That's what righteousness means. And this word for uh, Salem, Shalom, uh, that we are told that he is the king of peace, it means to be at one with God. It means to be in a perfect relationship. No division, nothing coming in between the two. So what does that tell us about Melchizedek? It tells us that he is united to God. It tells us that he is not separated from God by sin, but that he is in fact at peace with God. Why? Because he's righteous. He has no sin. So if Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that tells us two things. It tells us many things, but two that I want to just focus on briefly here are that Jesus is righteous. We've sang multiple songs today, and I picked them on purpose, that talk about that Jesus is our righteousness. Much like Abraham, we don't have a righteousness of our own. We are weak and we are needy sinners. We are unrighteous. Isaiah tells us that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. But Melchizedek is righteous, the king of righteousness. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he is righteous. Jesus is also the king of peace then, as Melchizedek was. Meaning that there is nothing that separates him from God. He is in perfect union with him. He is at peace. He has a relationship with God that is close-knit. When we understand who Melchizedek is, we have a better understanding of who Jesus is. He is both righteous, he is both at peace with God. That means that he can be a priest. It means that he can go before God. Why? He has no sin, And because he has that deep and abiding peace with God. The next two things that I want us to look at with Melchizedek is summed up in in verse 3, but we'll use much of the rest of the chapter to discuss these things. Talking about Melchizedek, it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Now, nearly every character in the Bible that is important has a really, really long genealogy, right? Whenever you read the book of Genesis, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. I had a Sunday school teacher, I probably have told you guys this before, whenever I was really little, he couldn't say a lot of the names, like Jehoshaphat and Methuselah, he would just say buttermilk. So he'd come to some of these passages and he's reading, he's like, buttermilk begat, buttermilk begat, buttermilk. I mean, this was the South, so it was, um, anyways, Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy. Abraham has a genealogy, Jacob has a genealogy, David has a genealogy, and in fact, we know that the biggest genealogy of all is Jesus's, Right? I mean, Matthew and Luke both have pages of genealogies about Jesus. That tells us how important someone is in the Bible. That's one of the ways that it indicates that to us. But Paul sees the fact that Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy, that it doesn't tell us who his father is, it doesn't tell us who he begat, who his sons are. He tells us that that is actually theologically significant. 
it's actually important. Because by not telling us that, it's actually telling us that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Later this week, Amy is going to celebrate her birthday. And so that means you know, we're celebrating her beginning of days. And that's awesome. It means that she was born. But one day, Amy will also have an end of life. Just as will all of us. Melchizedek doesn't have a birthday. He doesn't have a funeral. Now, what does that tell us? It says that resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We're going to see a shift here. It's not so much that Jesus looks like Melchizedek, but that Melchizedek looks like Jesus. How? He is without beginning or end. Now think about how that tells us about Jesus. Yes, Jesus was born. He was born of a virgin. We know that he has both mother and father. He has a genealogy. But that was his human nature. John 1 tells us that in the beginning, before the beginning of days, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Therefore, the divine nature of Christ, which the author of Hebrews makes clear to us and talks about to us earlier in the book, is without beginning of days. He has no, the, the, the divine nature of Christ has no birthday. He lasts forever. But also, Christ has no end of life. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins, but he was raised again for our justification. Melchizedek and Jesus are high priests. Why? Because they are from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting. Now, look a little bit further in in chapter 7. Beginning in verse 11, he says, or I'm, I'm sorry, look in verse 23. Talking about the high priests, particularly the Levitical priests, he says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. All of the former priests died, so you needed a new one. And then that one would die. And then you needed a new one. But what does it tell us about Jesus? It says that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. I don't know how many of you have, have in your professional lives, you know, maybe in your office or in your workplace, you have a boss Right? And you report to that boss. And whenever you have questions or comments or concerns, you go to that boss. And then maybe that boss retires, or maybe that boss gets transferred to another office, and they put a new boss in. And then you have to rebuild that relationship. Right? There has to be a trust that's built. Because there's transferred out, we have to rebuild that relationship. And that can be frustrating, Right? Maybe you have the same thing with neighbors. Maybe you've had a neighbor that you've known for a really long time, and it's like, oh, yeah, you, know, I don't care. You're, you hit the ball over my fence, we'll throw it back over. And then they move, and then you have a new neighbor. And it's like, ah, oh, this guy. The priests 
were prevented from continuing in office by death. But we have Christ. He doesn't get transferred. He doesn't move away. He does not die. He does not slumber. He does not sleep. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is like Melchizedek in this way. And think about how fantastic this is. Right? It's not as if, yeah, whenever you were younger and you became a Christian 20 years ago or 15 years ago or whenever it was that you trusted in Jesus then, but Jesus is retiring and he's going to the beach now. We need a new high priest. We have a high priest who lives forever. Not only is he unstained by sin, but he is untouchable by death. This is the high priest we have. This is the one who goes before us to God. But not only does Melchizedek's lack of genealogy, not only does it tell us that he lives forever, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, it also tells us something about the nature of his priesthood. Beginning in verse 4. See how great this man was, that's Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Paul is, is, is sort of delving deep into Levitical law here. The book of Leviticus, that, uh, uh, that is a sort of a preface to Deuteronomy that Eric has just preached through. And in this, God makes a provision God says, all right, the people of Israel, you are wicked and sinful. It's in their constitution. Because as soon as they get freed from slavery in Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, and what do they do? They make a golden calf. They become stiff-necked. They become like that calf. Rather than becoming like the holy God who has set them free, they make a golden calf, an unruly calf. And they become stiff-necked and unruly. It's in their constitution. It's who they are. But God in his mercy gave them priests. The sons of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, were to take the sins of the people upon themselves and then upon goats and sacrifice those goats. This was good. If you are a child of Israel, you want that, right? You want a goat to be slain for your sin so that you aren't. If you are a child of Israel, you look at the Levitical law and you say, thank you, God, for giving us this. And in that law, the priests who ministered to God on behalf of the people, their care, their, their livelihood was protected. Because if you're a priest and you're constantly in the tabernacle, that means that you're not out farming your land. Right? You know, Eric is here every day. He's studying. He's counseling, he's ministering, so he can't be at Trader Joe's stocking groceries or uh, at the insurance office selling insurance, whatever it might be. And so that's why we seek to give financially to sustain him and his family. In the same way, the Levites were provided for by the people of Israel. There was no other tribe, there was no other tribe that was supposed to receive a tithe. Not, not Issachar, not Judah, not Benjamin, not Gad, only the Levites. Now, Paul says that even Levi himself, in the loins of Abraham, paid tithe 
to Melchizedek. So, well, wait, the Levites don't pay tithes. Why is there someone else getting a tithe? Well, Paul tells us that it's because Melchizedek is that great of a high priest. See how great this man is, that even one who wasn't supposed to pay the tithes, they're paying tithes. So what does this tell us? It tells us that Melchizedek's priesthood goes beyond the Levitical law. It goes beyond what Moses said. As he says here uh, in verse 6, the man who does not have his descent from Levi, that is Melchizedek, he received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Levi, it says in verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes while he was still in the loins of Abraham. Now, the reason why Paul is, 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 is making this somewhat technical point is he wants us to see that the Levitical priesthood, while it was good, and while the Israelites would have been thankful to have had it, while the blood of bulls and goats was good for them to have, there is a priesthood that goes deeper. There is a priesthood that is more fundamental. There is a priesthood that is greater. As he says in verse 11, that if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under that people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Think about it this way. Why didn't Psalm 110 say, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I have sworn my mind and will not change. You will be a priest after the order of Aaron. Why doesn't he say that? Why didn't David say that? Well, there's two reasons that he gives us here. One is that we know that Christ was descended from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. But the second is that the Levitical priesthood made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. We know that, as it says later in this chapter, that these priests, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves first. Right? They weren't like Melchizedek who was righteous. They were sinners, and they had to sacrifice for their own sins. But also, Melchizedek was righteous, Melchizedek was perfect, and did he come before or after Moses and the Levitical law? Before. So was Melchizedek's perfection, was it based on keeping the law? Was it based on the blood of bulls and goats? Was Melchizedek's perfection, was it based on being descended from Levi? No. His perfection was achieved because of his righteous and sinless life. So Jesus being called a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, means that Jesus' priesthood is perfect. Jesus is himself perfect. Now, we have a tendency to think that in the Old Testament, you were saved, you received God's blessing... How? By keeping God's law. Right? That's just what, that seems the right way of thinking. But what does this tell us? This tells us that perfection was not attainable through keeping the law. 
it also tells us that Melchizedek blessed Abram. Melchizedek did not have the law. Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest. How then was he able to bless him? Verses 20 and 21. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But the one who was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Church, what I want us to understand here is that Melchizedek was a better priest, not because he kept the law. He was a better priest, not because he did all of the right things and he was circumcised, that he sacrificed the proper number of bulls and goats, and that he had the temple. He had none of those things. He had none of those things. What he had was a life that was unstained from sin. And he also had the promise of God's blessing to Abraham. In the same way, Christ as our high priest makes us perfect, is himself perfect, not because of the blood of bulls and goats, but because of who he is, because of his own righteousness. Now, if the blessings of God are achieved through this priest, through the priest that is not Levitical, through the priest that doesn't shed the blood of bulls and goats, but sheds his own blood, then that ought to tell us something. It ought to key us into the fact that I do not earn God's favor, I do not earn God's blessing, I do not earn my salvation based on what I have done. That was never the way it was supposed to happen. It was always supposed to happen in God's plan that we would be saved, as chapter 6 says, by the word of promise, by the oath, that Jesus Christ is our great and true high priest. He is our great high priest, as 26 says, that is innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Church, there is not a Levitical high priest that could claim any of those things. Only Christ. Whatever we might be tempted to trust in for our salvation, the audience of the book of Hebrews, they would have been tempted to say, you know what, Jesus is great, but I can still go to the temple and I can still have a bull or a goat you know, sacrificed on my behalf. Paul tells them, you don't need it. You know why you don't need it? Because those guys, that priesthood can't make you perfect. It didn't even make the priest perfect. But there is a priesthood that does make perfect. There is a priesthood that is in and itself perfect. It's the priesthood of Christ the priesthood of our Messiah, the one who has come, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. Melchizedek does not have genealogy. He has not beginning of days nor end of life, but is from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus Christ lives forever in victory. He rose victorious over the grave and he continues as a priest forever, not being held back by death. Melchizedek, he achieved the priesthood. He had a priesthood that was not contingent upon the Levitical law. It wasn't contingent upon the blood of bulls and goats, but on his own righteousness. And Christ has a priesthood 
where he is righteous, a priesthood that does not depend upon the blood of bulls and goats, but on who he is and on what he has done. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does this mean? How, how does this affect our lives? And I want to do two things to close us out and see how this high priest, Jesus, our righteous priest forever, I want us to look at two things. I want us to look at two things about what that means for us. Beginning in verse 25, because all of this, because we've seen that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he says, consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Earlier we confessed, uh, we, we, we said the Heidelberg Catechism together. And it talks about in there the three things that we need to know in order to know Christ as a perfect Savior. And one of the things that it says we need to know is our misery. So I just want to remind you all of your misery for a few minutes. Okay? In, in like the 16th, 17th, 18th century, Christians were really good at this, right? They were really good at saying, I am a terrible, awful sinner. How could God ever love me? Martin Luther, whenever he was asked, do you love God? He said, no, I hated him. Why? Because he understood his guilt and his misery. He understood that he needed a Savior who would save him to the uttermost. Think about this past week, this past month, this past year, your whole life. Think about every time that maybe a sibling has done something that hurt your feelings. Think about maybe a coworker who lied and cheated and stole to maybe get in line for that promotion ahead of you. Maybe think about, you know, the way that someone looked at you. And just by their gaze, they made you feel a certain way. Maybe think about whenever someone said something mean to you. They called you a fool. They called you stupid. They called you ignorant. How that made you feel. It hurts, right? The Bible tells us that we don't just have that done to us. The Bible tells us that we do it to others. If you don't think your sin is a big deal, and we don't, we, we think so little of our sin. Think about how much it hurts you whenever someone sins against you. And then think about the fact that you have done that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. You have acted disrespectfully to siblings. You have done things to try and get yourself ahead. We all have. I have. Now think about the fact that you haven't just done that to someone that has done it to you or done it to someone else, because that's bad enough. Think about the fact that you have done it to God. If you do not take your sins seriously, think about this. God, who created all things, who made all things good, you have sinned against him. You have turned against him. Rather than telling God how wonderful and glorious he is, you've said, you know what, I kind of think you're garbage. Because that's what we do when we sin. Let's, let's just be very honest and real. Church, this is our misery. We have hurt others. We have rebelled against God. We have committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe. Whenever we think about our sin like that, 
we begin to understand that on one side of that chasm is God and on the other side is ours. And it's the Grand Canyon in between us. Good luck getting across that canyon. Good luck. It's like taking, trying to get across ourselves with our own righteousness. It's like taking toothpicks and trying to make a bridge across the Grand Canyon. It's not going to work. We cannot draw near to God. We need a high priest who will draw us near to God. And that is the high priest that we have in Christ. Right? He is unstained from sin. He offered a sacrifice once for all, and it is finished. So church, having considered how great your misery, having considered how great your guilt is, now consider how great our Savior is. And that he died once for all, it is finished. You have no more guilt when your trust and your faith is in Christ. When you are covered by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, you have a full and a final salvation. He says he is able to save to the uttermost. That means in our little experiment back there, whenever you considered your guilt and your misery, no matter how low you've No matter how far away, even if you're lower than a piece of gum on the bottom of a shoe, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to draw us near to God so powerfully, so wonderfully, that you are never so far that he cannot bring you back to God. That is the power of Christ our Savior. But it also tells us that he always lives to make intercession for them. And church, this is great news because the priest would daily go before God. He would go before God and he would take the cares and the concerns of the people before him. And that is what Christ does for us. It says he makes intercession for us. So church, we have so many things in our hearts and our lives. We have so many cares and so many concerns. I mean, right now my life is upside down. Oh, I'm so tired, as many of you are. It's like this third kid, and I like to call her Flipper, because she turned everything upside down. We're tired. You have sickness. You have trials. You have work. You have struggles with family members. And all of these things weigh down on us. They all, they're, they're heavy burdens. And these are cares that we have. Church, we can cast these cares upon the Lord. We can take all of this to Christ. Why? Because he lives to make intercession for us. Have you ever thought about that? Christ is praying for you. I love to pray for you guys. Eric loves to pray for you guys. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I hope that I continue to develop and grow as someone who is a good prayer. But boy, to know that Christ is praying for you, that ought, to, that ought to give us confidence. That ought to give me confidence to say that, yes, sleep is you know, very, very rare right now, but Christ is praying for me. Christ is interceding. He's, he, he, it tells me he lives. It tells me he rose again from the grave so that he can go before God for me. Boy, I can make it through this struggle by his grace. God, I have this concern I give it to you. Take my concern. Christ saves to the uttermost, and he lives to make intercession for us. 
There's nothing, no sin so great that he cannot save you. There's no trial so deep and so dark that he will not carry you through and take your care and concern before God. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is the high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I oftentimes get asked, uh, I've preached through Hebrews a few times now, and, and a lot of times I get asked, all right, so Melchizedek, who is he? John, one of the first things you ever asked me is you asked me, is Melchizedek, like, was that, is, is Melchizedek like an Old Testament coming of Christ? Or in other words, whenever we read Genesis 14, are we reading about Jesus in the Old Testament? I could give you 12 reasons why I think, yes, Melchizedek is Jesus. And I can give you 12 reasons why I think, no, he's not Jesus. All that to say, I don't necessarily think it's important. Here's what I do think is important. How many of you know the, the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia? It is my favorite series. Um, I've read it to my kids many times. I hope to read it to them many more. And as you read the Chronicles of Narnia, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Chronicles of Narnia by now, then I'm sorry. But in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's one character who takes center stage in every book. It's Aslan, right? Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he dies on the stone table uh, taking the guilt of Edmund. And and he, he comes back to life and leads the children to victory. And the magician's nephew, Aslan, is there at the creation of Narnia. In the silver chair, Aslan is the presence and the spirit guiding the children through the dark and shadowy tunnels. In the last battle, Aslan is the victorious and true lion who will bring his people to everlasting life with him in victory. And as we read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's it's inescapable, right? It's inescapable to look at Aslan and say, oh my goodness, I know what C.S. Lewis is doing here. There's a great book that I read, and it's called Planet Narnia. And the author of this book says that whenever C.S. Lewis was writing about Aslan, and in each of the seven books, when we see something different about Aslan, it's not so much that he's trying to make Aslan look like Jesus, but it's that Jesus looks an awful lot like Aslan. Think about that. Jesus is a lion after the order of Aslan. And inevitably, when I read the Chronicles of Narnia, when I see that Aslan died innocent for the guilty, what do I do? I think about Jesus. I say, Jesus looks like Aslan, and how excellent is Jesus. Whenever I look at Aslan, the true Aslan in the last battle, Not the one, not a donkey who's wearing a lion suit, but the true Aslan who leads his people further up and further in. I think, oh my goodness, how great it will be when Christ returns, putting all the other antichrists, putting every other false teaching and false God out of the way so that we can have true victory with him. I think, how excellent is Christ? I never read the Chronicles of Narnia and I'm like, I want to go to a church where they worship Aslan, right? When I read Aslan, when I see what he's done, it reminds me of Jesus. And my heart is stirred to worship. I'm reminded of how great he is. 
When we see Melchizedek, we ought to be thinking the same thing. Not, man, that Melchizedek sure is awesome. What a mysterious character in the Bible. Melchizedek. I want to unlock the secret depths of wisdom about him. Right? We have two places. You can count them. Two places. I guess a third here in Hebrews where Melchizedek is talked about. Literally, like, 15 verses in the Bible talk about Melchizedek. The entire New Testament teaches us about Jesus. The entire New Testament is page after page, line after line. And in fact, the Old Testament is page after page, line after line, telling us about Christ. We ought to be filled with wonder at who he is. My job as worship leader and song leader at this church ought to be really easy because we have someone who is worth singing about. We don't have a Levitical priest. We don't even have Melchizedek. We have one who's better. We have Christ Jesus. Church, I hope today that you are wowed and overwhelmed, dismayed, filled with wonder at this fact that Jesus Christ is the King of righteousness. He is unstained from sin where we are stained from sin. I hope that you are wowed and overwhelmed and wondered at the fact that Jesus lives forever. He conquered the grave. Death cannot hold him. Jesus Christ is untouched by sin. He's untouched by death. And because of that, not because he killed goats, not because he went into the temple, but because he is perfect, because he lives forever, he is our high priest. Let's be wowed and wondered at Christ for what he's done. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we have such a high priest. We thank you that you said it was fitting that we have a high priest. That we have a high priest who was not made high priest by the law, but was made high priest by the word of the oath, by the promise that you would bless us and that Christ brings us those blessings. Dear Father, I pray that we will be comforted by this truth, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through him, and that you intercede for us in our darkest and deepest trials. We praise you that Christ is ours forever and ever, because he lives forever and ever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.